We're reading from the book of Philippians, chapter 2, verses 1 to 18. These are God's words. If there is therefore any exhortation in anointed, if any consolation of love, if any shared commonality of the Spirit, if any soft-heartedness and compassions, make full my joy, so that ye be of the same mind, having the same love, being of one soul, like-minded, doing nothing through rivalry or vainglory, but in lowliness of mind, each counting another as excelling himself, not looking each of you to his own, but each of you also to that of others. Have this mind in you, which was also in anointed Jesus, who in the form of God, though he existed, counted it not to be grasped to be on equality with God, but emptied himself, taking the form of a slave, being made in the likeness of men, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself, becoming obedient even unto death, the death now of the cross. Wherefore also God highly exalted him and granted unto him the name which is above every name, that in the name of Jesus every knee should bow in the heavens and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue should confess that Lord is Jesus anointed to the glory of God the Father. So then, my beloved, even as ye always have obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, with fear and trembling your own salvation work out, for God is who exerteth in you both to will and to exert for his good pleasure. Do all things without muttering and contentions, so that ye may become blameless and simple children of God, blemishless in the midst of a generation crooked and warped, in whom ye shine as lights in the world, the word of life holding forth unto me a boast in the day of anointed, that not in vain did I run, nor in vain toil, but even if I am poured out upon the sacrifice and service of your faith, I joy and rejoice with all of you. Now likewise also ye joy and rejoice with me. Let us give thanks to God for his word. Father, thank you for the gift that you have given us of your scriptures. Please help us to understand them, open our hearts, and plant your word within them, and help it to grow. Send your spirit on us now, cover over my weaknesses and any errors that I make, and let us know your truth. We ask these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. As we are starting to wrap up our series on vocation, on what God calls us to, we looked last time at the call to sacrifice. This is, in some ways, the most basic and the most complex thing that we have looked at at the same time. So it is kind of fitting that we look at it last. Sacrifice underlies everything that we've looked at in this series. Every other call of God (coughs) upon us is in one sense or another a call to sacrifice. So in a sense, by looking at sacrifice, we are summing up or wrapping up all of these calls when we look at the call to sacrifice. And yet it is also important to look at sacrifice as a unique call in itself, because as we saw last time, it is a pattern that is not only critically important to Christian piety, but really to all of creation. Let me briefly remind you of the broad strokes of what we covered last time, because if you remember, it was quite theological and theoretical. Today, I want to be a little bit more practical how we can apply these insights in our daily lives and understand the world better through them, what we saw was that sacrifice is built into the nature of creation. 
Not in some coincidental way, like God thought it would just be a good idea to add sacrifice in there. It actually cannot not be built into the nature of creation. Because sacrifice is fundamentally, intrinsically, about giving up yourself in order to uphold something higher than yourself and to participate in that greater reality as one part of it. This is the pre-fall creational pattern of death, not as an evil result of sin, not a curse, not a pattern of atonement, which was added because of sin, but a natural and good disintegration of one smaller body so that it can be reintegrated as a member of a larger body. Unless creation were all just one thing, it would be impossible not to have this kind of sacrifice. <clears throat> Remember John 12, 24 is our starting off point there. Except a grain of wheat fall into the earth and die, it abideth by itself alone. But if it die, it beareth much fruit. This is sacrifice as a pattern, as a spiritual reality. But of course, when you explain something as a spiritual reality, it becomes very abstract. Because spirit has no form. That is the nature of spirit. It is up in the heavens. Now, obviously, you can use physical examples like the seed dying to explain the pattern, but it remains very hypothetical, very unreal. Spiritual patterns must be expressed physically in order to be useful to us, in order to do anything, to have any effect in the world. There's the old joke about some Christians being so heavenly minded that they are of no earthly use. But it's not really funny because... Such a Christian has failed at Gospel 101, which is, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Well, it's all very well to have this theoretical understanding, but it is of very limited value if we don't know how to apply it to the world around us, and especially to our own lives. We are supposed to be impressing spiritual patterns into the physical world, not just meditating upon the patterns themselves. Biblical wisdom is not head knowledge. It is insight into how to live well in light of the nature of the world. True wisdom in scripture is as much a lived out response to knowledge about the world as it is that knowledge itself. So how do we live out our knowledge of sacrifice? Well, we have seen many examples already as we've worked through vocation. We've seen how man was called to serve not himself but the world and through the world serve God. Adam was to give of himself to God and serve the garden, to raise up a household. And of course, he literally gave of himself in the creation of Eve. And Eve was to help him in this, which meant that she had to give of herself too. They would each give of themselves to the other so that they were no longer two bodies, but one flesh. And then through that union, they would further give of themselves in forming the larger body of a household and then of a tribe, and eventually of a great people, all serving God as he had called them to do, all giving of themselves to create and participate in a glorious body, which would have been both a family and a nation and a church, since without sin, those institutions were not torn apart and set against each other, but would have cohered together in perfect harmony by faith and obedience to God. They would have become the same thing that Peter says that we are being built into, which is that we are living stones built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. 
And this, of course, echoes the language of Paul, which summarizes what God calls mankind to, and has always called mankind to, to present your bodies a living sacrifice, wholly acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service. That's Romans 12.1. But of course, we know Adam sinned, and if you think about the way that he sinned, it was precisely through a refusal to sacrifice. Why did Adam fall? Was it not because instead of giving up from below where he was, he tried to take from above? Okay, that's very abstract. Here's what I mean. Adam wanted to be exalted. He wanted to be raised up. He wanted to be greater than he was, right? And in wanting that, he did not actually desire an evil thing because, of course, God made him to be the king of the world. He made him to be exalted. He made him to be the highest person in creation after God himself. But there are two ways that you can try to get higher. One is effective but difficult, and one is useless but easy. The useless and easy way is to try to reach up and take what is above you. This often seems quite doable in the short term, just as it was perfectly doable for Adam to eat the fruit of the tree of knowledge. But the problem with this method is that you can never gain what you actually set out to get. Adam did not get what he expected. He wanted the knowledge that would exalt him as king. But what he got by trying to take that knowledge wrongly, was the knowledge that he was a sinner in the hands of an angry God. You can never take what is above you and actually get the thing that you wanted, just as you can never eat your cake and still have it as well, because what is above you is by definition greater than you are. It is stronger than you. It is more mighty than you. It is more worthy than you. You cannot climb the stairway to heaven the hierarchy of creation, the chain of being, by dragging those above you down. Because ultimately, you would be trying to drag God out of heaven. Isaiah 14, Thou saidst in thy heart, I will ascend into heaven, I will exalt my throne above the stars of God, and I will sit upon the mount of congregation in the uttermost parts of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds, I will make myself like the Most High. But does it work? No, thou shalt be brought down to Sheol, to the uttermost parts of the pit. It has the opposite effect of what you intended. When you try to exalt yourself by seizing a higher place, grasping for what is above you, you might as well try to unseat the Almighty, because that is ultimately what you are aiming to do. He's the one at the very top. The thing cannot be done. And not only is it impossible, but it is by nature, actually going to make you lower. Not because God will cast you down, although he very well might, but because what you are trying to do is reverse sacrifice. It is upside down. You are trying to make what is higher give itself down to you. But sacrifice doesn't mean give down, it means give up. Since this is fundamentally unnatural to try to make the thing above you give itself to you, it is contrary to the actual hierarchy of creation, and all it does is diminish you further. It is like a, a foot saying, I'm going to be the head now. The whole body must serve me, and from now on, the head will be used for walking and I will go on top. Well, the foot has delusions above its station. It is not fitted to be the head. 
It never could be the head. It doesn't have eyes or ears or a mouth. It isn't meant to wave about in the air. And neither is the head fitted to stand in the dirt and move the body about. If the foot has its way, then the whole body, including it, would suffer and eventually die. Or to give you a similar analogy that is maybe a little less ridiculous, suppose the stomach were to say, from now on, eating is the highest thing. Every member of the body is going to serve eating. Well, Paul uses just such a metaphor, doesn't he? And what do we learn happens to people that function this way? Philippians 3, 18 to 19, Many walk of whom I told you often and now tell you even weeping, the enemies of the cross of Christ, whose end is destruction, whose God is the belly, and whose glory is in their shame. This is the end of everyone who disorders the hierarchy and tries to make the wrong thing the highest thing. Their glory is their shame. How could it not be? They are placing into the position of glory something not meant to be there. Something which is meant to serve glory, serve the highest good and participate in it. And therefore by nature is less than it. Whether it is food, whether it is money, power, status. When these things become ends rather than means, when they are treated as the head rather than as members of the body, when they are no longer something that can be sacrificed or given up, but rather something that everything must give up to, they become the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. Things that destroy us by overturning the hierarchy. Isaiah 29, you turn things upside down. Shall the potter be esteemed as the clay? That the thing made should say of him that made it, he made me not. Or the thing formed say of him that formed it, he hath no understanding. We know how that goes. Adam brought us death by trying to exalt himself in this way. And all his children, by nature, do the same thing. But there is an alternative, a created pattern of sacrifice. Look again at our passage today. Notice the contrast between Jesus and Adam. It is not something Paul explicitly calls out, but it is there in the background. Adam grasped for equality with God. Remember what the serpent said, you will not surely die, but when you eat, your eyes will be opened and you will be as God. Even though he knew this was a lie, Adam thought, hey, it's worth a go. But by contrast, the Lord Jesus, though he was already in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a slave. Adam wanted to take kingship rather than attain it by service. Jesus took on slavery so that in the proper time, God would exalt him. And hence, Paul tells us that we must live in the same way. The righteousness which is of faith saith thus, Say not in thy heart, who shall ascend into heaven, that is, to bring Christ down, or who shall ascend, descend into the abyss, that is, to bring Christ up from the dead. But what saith it? The word is nigh thee in thy heart and in thy mouth. That's Romans 10, 6 to 8. God gives us a place in the hierarchy. He tells us the place. He gives us his word and expects us to keep it obediently. This is the only way for us to be raised higher. We cannot raise ourselves any more than we can bring Christ down out of heaven. 
Rather, Christ can raise us up and seat us with him in the heavenly places if we are willing to suffer as he did, emptying ourselves, not seeking to seize majesty and honor as if it were owed us, but counting others as more excellent than ourselves, as Paul says here in Philippians. Now, I want to take a moment to answer a question that may or may not have occurred to you, but if it did occur to you at this point, it might trouble you. That question is, isn't Jesus himself actually inverting the hierarchy, doing a kind of reverse sacrifice by making himself low? We've seen that to make something higher than it should be is, in essence, to try to drag God himself out of heaven and turn the world upside down. But isn't Jesus actually doing that by coming down from heaven and counting sinners as more important than himself, which they aren't? Isn't Jesus placing mankind above God? I hope you see the deep significance of this question. Great is the mystery of godliness. God was shown in the flesh. And there's a lot that would be worth exploring here to fully answer this, but let me say this for now. It is true that Jesus gave himself up for man. He is the sacrifice for our sins. But did he do this to show the greatness and the glory of man or the greatness and the glory of God? To ask the question, obviously, is to answer it. Jesus did not empty himself in order to try to participate in the higher reality and greater body of mankind, but rather to raise mankind up again to participate in the higher reality and greater body of himself. <coughs> because God loves man, he lowers himself to man's place so that by ascending again, he can bring man with him. He's not overturning the hierarchy, but redeeming it and restoring it. He's not putting himself below man, but raising man up from whence he had fallen. He is not breaking his own law, but fulfilling it for what the law could not do in that it was weak through the flesh. God sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin condemned sin in the flesh that the ordinance of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not after the flesh, but after the spirit. Romans 8. Had Adam not sinned, had he rather exalted God by giving himself up to God in service of the garden, he too would have been raised up to sit with God in the heavenly places. What Adam could not do, Jesus did for us by lowering himself in order to be exalted again. You see, it is not just the nature of creation that is sacrificial. It is the nature of God himself. Creation reflects its creator. It's very dangerous to speak of hierarchy within God. I'm keenly aware of the ESS controversy, for instance, but it is impossible to deny <coughs> that there is some sense in which each person gives himself up to the others. We saw not long ago, the father gives of himself to the son. And the father and the son give of themselves to the spirit. And we've seen the son gives of himself back to the father. I seek not my own will, but the will of him that sent me. John 5.30. It is safe to say the spirit too gives himself back to the father and to the son. 
And let me add, if you're a theology nerd, it seems to me this is simply a necessary corollary of the doctrine of perichoresis, that the three persons mutually indwell each other, having their being in each other, yet without commingling. This is essential to the nature of sacrifice. There is a kind of disintegration of our selves, but not so as to be dissolved in something greater, but to be reintegrated into that greater thing so that we share in it and mutually participate in it while retaining our own unique identity. Sacrifice is not an abandonment of the individual to the whole. It is a fulfillment of the individual in the whole. The individual is not diminished in the greater thing, let alone lost in it, but is rather magnified by participating in it and becomes more than he could ever have been alone. This is a very deep point of theology, but I mention it because it's so important to at least know that sacrifice is rooted in the nature of God himself. And it seems paradoxical, very often to us, in exactly the same way that God seems paradoxical. Sacrifice is an eternal, immutable pattern within the glory of the Godhead. And we are called to participate in it, to give ourselves up, not as this difficult command to lose ourselves for the sake of building our character or something, but as a loving command to find ourselves for the sake of glory. To be called to sacrifice is to be called to glory to be called to partake in the divine nature, which is eternal love and joy and blessing. See how Paul describes this in our passage, verses 17 and 18 at the end. Even if I am poured out upon the sacrifice and service of your faith, I joy and rejoice with all of you. Now likewise also ye joy and rejoice with me. It's a mutual, reciprocal sacrifice. This is the human version of the mutual giving and participation and joy within the Godhead itself. Each person pouring himself out for the others and being filled in turn by them. Paul describes the Philippians as the tribute offering added to the ascension in the temple. That's where you've got the flour and the oil. And he is the drink offering, the, the wine that is poured out beside it. Sacrifice upon sacrifice. Blessing for blessing. Now that I feel like I've really hammered home the necessity of sacrifice to image in God, image in Christ, let's turn to consider some of the practical ways in which Scripture calls us to sacrifice. We've looked already at how husbands must give themselves up to work and through the sacrifice, they build their households and they nurture their families. And in the same way, they must often give up their own desires in learning self-rulership in order to be able to rule their households well. So I don't want to dwell on those, um, those things that we've already covered. I just want to remind you of them because they seem more significant. They make more sense in light of what we've learned about sacrifice. So you know also wives too must give up their desires for their husbands in order for their household to function well as a body because there can only be one head. And we also saw how the Proverbs 31 woman gives up her time and her energy and her skills for her house and receives in return honor and praise. And at the same time, we look briefly at hospitality, which is one of the chief ways in which Christians are called to live sacrificially. 
They give up of their substance for others, and especially for strangers. In the New Testament, the word hospitality, literally in the Greek, is stranger love. It's just as Christ gave himself up for those who were strangers to God. And then I think the most remarkable image of sacrifice we've looked at is in how women give up the substance of their own bodies to create and nurture their children. And by this sacrifice, new life is made and an entire household grows into existence. So a woman gives up her life, in a sense, to multiply that life and then receives back even more than she gave. And we also saw how that pattern played out, especially in the life of Hannah, who was so attentive to the sacrificial system of Israel and what it taught her about God's character, that she gave up her firstborn son to God and thanks for opening her womb. Now, this brings us to a form of sacrifice, the fact that Hannah was observing the sacrificial system, it's all linked in with her story, brings us to a form of sacrifice that's worth mentioning primarily because it should be obvious, but it is not in the modern day, and that is liturgy, worship. That is how Hannah learned sacrificial living and concluded that it was right to offer Samuel to God, and it is certainly how we should be learning sacrificial living also, because As we've covered pretty extensively at this point, worship is the center of life. It's where the pattern of the rest of the week is set and established. The top of the mountain, everything flows down from here. Yet because the modern church has mostly abandoned the idea of liturgy, we will seldom learn sacrificial living in a church. Churches no longer ask you to give up your time and your preferences. They don't ask you to disintegrate your identity so that it can be reintegrated into a larger identity of saints participating together in a common liturgy, acting as a single body rather than individuals. Obviously, that does still happen to some extent because you you just can't eradicate that creational pattern. But the really messed up thing is how hard the Western church has tried to eradicate it. The Western church has gone out of its way to avoid asking people to sacrifice anything in worship, or the rest of life, for that matter. Churches generally pander desperately to whatever people want, trying to assure them that they won't have to give up anything. That, in fact, church is there really to serve them and their needs, their desires, to entertain them, to accommodate them. Just recently, Jared was telling me about the concept of, I think it was called throwaway songs. These are the songs that are played at the beginning of the service to kind of jolly along the latecomers while entertaining the people who bothered to show up on time. We can't ask people to sacrifice their convenience in order to come into the presence of God at an appointed time. Instead, the body will sacrifice the integrity of its worship to accommodate those who show up late. And that's just the tip of the iceberg. Obviously, I don't want to turn this into a rant or get too negative or speak evil of anyone, but we all know that the Western church has embraced individualism, hook, line, and sinker. But the problem is, because sacrifice is a creational pattern, it is not whether you sacrifice, but what. The old not whether, but which. Either the individual gives up something to be incorporated into the larger body, Or the body gives up something so the individual can maintain his individuality. That's just the way it works, but that's also just another way of saying that the body is being disintegrated. 
Either you have the lesser giving up to the greater, the lower to the higher, or you have it the other way around. So it's either a true sacrifice or a reverse sacrifice. You're either climbing the mountain or turning the world upside down. Now, of course, there are times to address the obvious question when the body does give something up for a member. When one member suffereth, all the members suffer with it. Or one member is honored, all the members rejoice with it. 1 Corinthians 12, 26. But that is the body acting as a body, with each member integrated into it. It's a different pattern when you have a bunch of individuals who expect to have no obligations placed upon them or resent the obligations placed upon them and indeed expect to obligate the head to give them whatever they want. Which is unfortunately the functional state of many churches today to one degree or another. I shall move on to better things by noting what happens when we are instructed by the word in a more excellent way. What happens when we learn that modern individualism is not the best way, that it's a curse and a blight? <coughs> what happens when we start to discern more closely how God would have us live and worship? When we start to think about liturgy more clearly? Well, let me suggest to you that we find ourselves giving up false beliefs. We sacrifice what we thought we knew. We disintegrate these false ideas from ourselves in order to integrate true doctrine into our hearts and minds instead. Growing in wisdom is a continual exercise of sacrifice because it is a continual exercise of giving up our own foolishness and usually our own pride along with it because fools and pride go together and being humbled by God to accept his wisdom instead. But as I said earlier, wisdom is not just head knowledge. So when we grow in wisdom and conform ourselves more closely to the truth, it issues in action as well. Remember in Romans 1, sorry, Romans 12, 1, how Paul tells us to present our bodies a living sacrifice. Look at what he follows it up with. He immediately goes on to say, be not fashioned according to this world, but be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind that ye may test what is the good an acceptable and perfect will of God. The renewing of our mind fashions us into something more like God and less like the world. It changes our behavior, and through that, it helps us to test what is good and perfect and acceptable. Which means that we don't just end up giving up our false beliefs, we start giving up bad behaviors. We start thinking sacrificially and acting sacrificially. We start to ask ourselves, what are our lives in service of? What is our reason for being? We start to become aware that everything we do involves some kind of sacrifice, so some kind of giving up. So we better make sure that we are giving up to the right thing and that we are giving up the right things. You've got to make sure the highest thing is in the highest place. That's what it means to have your life in order. To have the most important things ordered ahead of the less important things. So we start to consider what we are living for. And this isn't just a one-time thing, obviously. If you're truly growing in wisdom, you're transforming your mind, being conformed to the image of Christ, you start to think about this much more intentionally and it starts to develop certain habits in you which in turn help to help you to see more clearly and think even more intentionally. It's like a virtuous cycle. So let me ask you, what are you living for? 
when I ask myself this question, my, in my heart there are many answers, because the question focuses my mind on a number of things, which I tend to think of as important, as pressing, as desirable, or even, if not desirable, as necessary. <coughs> John Piper's Christian hedonism is uh, pretty cringe in hindsight, but it is getting at an important idea. All of our des desires must be subordinated to a greater desire for God. We must be desiring God above everything else. God must be above everything. He must be at the top. So my job as a Christian is to soberly assess where exactly I am placing all of my desires in the hierarchy, whether they should even be in the hierarchy. Because again, it's not a question of whether we are giving up to something higher. It is a question of what we give up and what is higher. The Egyptians gave up their gold to the Israelites. And the Israelites then gave up that gold to do what? To make a calf of gold, to act as their integrating principle, the thing to fix their attention and to act as the point that holds them together. You see, they knew they needed something to integrate them. And Moses, he was at the mountain for so long, 40 days. When the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mount, the people gathered themselves together unto Aaron and said unto him, Up, make us gods. They shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man that went up, out of, that brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we know not what has become of him. And then when he returned, Moses had to grind the calf up and make them eat it to bring it back down to its proper place, which was, well, dung. But then later... They did the same thing with the wealth of Egypt, but this time they did not give it up to make an idol. They took the wealth that they had plundered and they gave it up to make a tabernacle. And that is rightly ordered sacrifice. The tabernacle was the true integrating principle of Israel, the center of the world, so to speak, the place that they looked to, the way that it's described. The, the tent of meeting was the place everyone would come out of their tent they would stand, they would look to the tent of meeting. That's where all of their attention was fixed. There was a point that held the camp together. The camp gathered around, at least for a while, until they sinned again and God moved himself out of the camp, which is a whole other story. So part of being not fashioned according to this world, but being renewed in our minds, involves asking what we are fixing our attention on, what we are making the, the point in our lives, it holds us together, and what we are giving our wealth to. It's not wrong to fix our attention on multiple things, of course, obviously we have to, nor to spend our money on many things, but are these things all subordinated to God, or are they acting as independent points that hold things together, or even points above God? And there are lots of thorny questions here, especially around taxation but let's leave aside coerced sacrifice and focus just on what we voluntarily spend our money and attention on. I think perhaps the greatest travesty of sacrifice today is how Christians spend their money and their attention. They give very little to the church. I would guess that fewer than 10% give 10%, but they give a great deal to organizations that exist to advance the kingdom of darkness. This is something that we all need to think about more, especially as it relates to the Sabbath, I think. The way that we spend our wealth on the Sabbath is outrageous. 
but I'm only starting to learn God's ways in these things, despite being a Christian for nearly 20 years. That's theoretically 20 years of discipleship. You'd think that I would at least have the basics clear by now, but sadly we live in a time when the church does not know the basics. So this is not something I want to investigate further now. It's something I, I raise in passing and would like to spend more time on in the future. For now, I'd like to make one final point of application, really more of a warning and an exhortation in light of the issue of wealth and attention and what I've just said, <coughs> obviously living sacrificially is hard. Or I should say living in a way that puts the right things in the right places, gives up the right things to the right things. That's hard. It's easy to give the wrong things to the wrong things. So here's the problem. The more you have, the harder it is to put God at the top. And the harder it is to give up the other things to him. The more you have to give up, the harder it is to do. This is both because you want that stuff and also because the need for God himself is diminished in your sight because you are relying on the stuff. Those who have more to lose think they have less to gain and they also become trapped in the patterns of the things that they already have rather than seeing value in spiritual things that aren't so concrete. They start to live by faith, not by sight. They become fixated on the present, not the future. In the modern world, that puts all of us in a difficult position because we all have so much that it is incredibly hard for us to live truly sacrificially. It's a great irony, the more you have, the less sacrificial you tend to become. Now we expect that the world is going to have trouble with living sacrificially, of course. We expect the world to gather wealth, to worship mammon. But unfortunately, the church today has followed the world almost completely. I believe the greatest challenge we face today as Christians is actually one of our own making, because obviously we face a huge number of practical challenges, but all of them, I think, can be reduced down to a simple principle. We have forgotten how to rightly sacrifice. God is truly no longer the highest and greatest thing to the church. He is no longer the integrating principle that fixes our attention and holds us together. We say he is. Obviously, we have to. We pay lip service to it. But if it were true, we would be ordering our lives differently. The church would not have almost universally chosen to order itself under the principle of safety when COVID came along. It would have been willing to sacrifice, to give up health and life for worship, as our forefathers did. And pastors would have led the way in modeling this sacrifice. Not that there ever was much danger, of course. If God were the highest good in the lives of Christians, they would not have made health and safety the highest good and ordered everything else, including worship, underneath those things. But they did do that, and in doing it, they created a fundamentally disordered structure that sacrificed not only God, but health and safety as well, because you can't actually hold on to the things below when you try to offer the things above to them. Reverse sacrifice does not work. You can't hang health and safety from an empty sky. You can only hang it from the God who provides health and safety. In the same way Jared preached recently on how Christians vote, 
We are not willing to give up, to sacrifice our pragmatic schemes, schemes that we hope will slightly slow the pace of degeneration. Instead, we give up God's law. Another obvious example is our inability to sacrifice the approval of the world for the approval of God. Hirelings in the church would rather give up their forthright young men than give up their reputations to disapproving school moms of both sexes. They would rather be the ones cool-shaming their flocks than be cool-shamed by the ones that they think have standing in the world. A more liturgical example is our utter lack of consideration for fasting. It's not even on most people's radar. I mean, this isn't a major point, but it's just indicative of the problem. Fasting is an Old Testament thing, right? But Jesus does not say, if you fast, be not as the hypocrites looking sour. He says, when you fast. But why would we fast? Should we give up our comfort? To what end? The sacrificial logic of fasting is lost on us because we no longer understand sacrifice. We are utterly oblivious to its importance because it is not God in the highest place in our lives, but comfort and convenience. Our God is our belly. I use possessive pronouns here because we are all complicit in the church's failure to some degree or another. It would be foolish to think that we are above it all, that we have escaped the sins that beset the rest of the church. This is a problem that is endemic to modern Western Christianity, and we are modern Western Christians. We may see the problem more clearly. It may concern us more greatly. We may be seeking to repent more intentionally, but we still have far more in common with the body of Christ in this age than we do with our forefathers in any age previously. That's just how bodies work. We are members of the 21st century body, and the 21st century body is extremely sick. If you can think of a problem with the church today, it's a safe bet that its root is an inability to live sacrificially. It's an equally safe bet that we ourselves are still ensnared in that to some degree ourselves. And it's a third safe bet that it shall not be healed and we shall not be exalted again, the church as a whole, I mean, until the Lord grants us repentance. Isaiah 29, for as much as this people draw nigh unto me and with their mouth and with their lips do honor me, but have removed their heart far from me. Their fear of me is a commandment of men which have been taught to them. Therefore, behold, I will proceed to do a marvelous work among this people, even a marvelous work and a wonder, and the wisdom of their wise men shall perish, and the understanding of their prudent men shall be hid. Well, when I started preparing the sermon, I did not mean for it to go this long, and I did not mean for it to be this negative, but the Spirit blows where he will. And in preparing this, I really was carried along to the conviction that he is very displeased with his people today. It is hard to even discern how many people he has left today among those who claim his name. But thanks be to God, he does not leave this in our hands. We cannot, we do not save ourselves. But he prepares even the good works for us to walk in. If we endure, we shall also reign with him. If we shall deny him, he also will deny us. If we are faithless, he abideth faithful, for he cannot deny himself. Through his great sacrifice, his perfect sacrifice, he overcomes our inability to sacrifice. And he will overcome it. 
for it is necessary for him to reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. So let us respond in faith to the hope that we have in this perfect, completed sacrifice by praising our servant king in song.